Today's message will show you practical ways you, as a Christian, can stand out in this world by living exceptional lives as citizens and as a worker so that unbelievers take notice and even provoke them to a saving faith. Verses 11 through 25 will help you to live, live out this famous quote that someone once said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. So before we begin, let's open up with the word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us here. Um, you brought us all here because you love us, you care for us, you have us all here for a reason, Lord. And, and so right now, I pray and I ask that you fill this room with your Holy Spirit. Fill us all with your love, Lord. We want to hear from you this morning. Lord, we need you. So many things that are out there that will distract us, Lord. And, and, and so now, in this particular moment, let us just focus on what you have to say, Lord, through your word. Your word speak to us powerfully so that it causes change in our lives. Let us hear from you now, Lord. In Jesus' name. So in the following verses we're about to read, Peter explains how we ought to live holy lives as citizens. So we're going to pick up where we left off yes, last week, and we'll, we're going to be in verse 11 of chapter of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. The word of God says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as good slaves. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, love the brothers and sisters, Fear God, honor the emperor. Now prior to getting to the specifics of the kind of conduct that we, that, that should characterize the Christian in various relationships of life, Peter introduces this section by informing us how our con conduct is missional. He does this with a reminder, an exhortation and a purpose. In the first half of verse 11, he reminds us of who we are. To begin with, he says that we're dear friends. However, in some translations, it says beloved by God. And 
I think this would be a more accurate translation of what Peter is intending to say here. You see, in and of ourselves, there's nothing that God can love, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted in the, in the beloved. He then reminds us that we are strangers and exiles in this world, and this fact should leave its stamp on all our behavior. As born-again Christians, you and I are temporary residents in a world that isn't our permanent home. For our true citizenship is in another country, in heaven. In the second half of verse 11, he exhorts us to proper conduct. Christians are to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. This means that we ought to deny ourselves the temporary pleasures of indulging in sinful passions because they'll hinder our communion with God and deter spiritual growth. Now for many, the first thing that comes to mind is sexual sins. But this, is actually, but this actually refers to any, any strong desire that is inconsistent with the will of God. This would include an overindulgence in food or drink, the determination to amass material possessions, or the, han the hankering for worldly pleasures. In verse 12, Peter gives us the purpose for having proper conduct. As believers, we must continue to conduct ourselves honorably among believers. Why or what for? So that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll realize they were wrong about you. When the Lord returns and you're vindicated for your good behavior, you see, on that day, every knee will bow and glorify God Almighty. And everyone who ever accused you of wrongdoing will be judged for what they did and what they said. Therefore, you should refrain from insulting anyone that unjustly accuses you so that they won't have a valid reason to be right about you on that day. You see, the intent of our good works is so unbelievers will experience what we experienced when we, um, when we were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, from this point forward, Peter cites some practical ways Christians ought to show exemplary behavior among those we interact with. When it comes to our relationship to government and to those in authority as Christians were to show honor and respect by submitting, by obeying and submitting to them. Now I know this, in this day and age and where we live in right now, this is very controversial. We live in a, in, in a time right now where, you know, our politics are one extreme or the other. And so I think that this particular passage definitely has some application and we need to think about it, pray about it, pray about what he's saying here. 
Now, again, you may not agree, but it's not me that you're disagreeing with. It's the word of God. Now, just to be clear from the onset, Peter here isn't referring to individual laws, but to the institutions that make and enforce those laws. For example, when Daniel and his three friends refused to obey the king's dietary regulations, they disobeyed the law, but the way they did it proved that they, were on, that they honored the king and respected the authorities. They weren't rebels. They were careful not to embarrass the official in charge or to get him in trouble. And yet, they stood their ground. They glorified God and at the same time honored the authority of the king. So you see, it's possible to submit to the institutions and still disobey laws. Another way to look at it is if you don't agree with a particular official, you ought to respect, you still ought to respect the position he or she holds, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the government. Even if you're in a different country, you should res be respectful of its government and obey the law. However, we mustn't allow any law to make us violate our own conscience or disobey the word of God. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, ML, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, one has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Now why should we submit to these institutions Peter says, because of the Lord. He might be remembering here Jesus' example when, as a man, when Jesus was walking here on earth, he always submitted to authority. Moreover, since God has established these structures of authority, he is pleased when we submit to them. Peter then names the offices, two particular offices that we are to respect. The emperor, who at the time was Nero. And if you were to do some research on who Nero was, you would see and understand that Nero was an evil man. He persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. He, what, some, of the th some of the things that he did, I mean, I can't even speak about here. But he did some really horrible things. And, and also... It's under him, under his persecution, Peter himself will later be put to death. So his point here was that Christians are expected to be good citizens, even in extreme situations, regardless of who's occupying the imperial palace. And the other is the governors who were appointed by and under the authority of the emperor within the Roman territories. The role of these governors was to administer laws and execute judgment, and to ideally punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, although this ideal wasn't always reached, 
Peter still wanted his readers to respect the office, even if they didn't respect the officer. Now, as Christians here in America, we're to apply Paul's words by submitting to those in authority and obeying the laws they've established. So regardless of what you think about the president, what you think about your state governor, or who your local mayor is, we must submit to them because of the Lord. The Bible tells us in Romans 13:1, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that, are, that exist are instituted by God. So if it's God's will for them to be there, then it's not our place to change the will of God. Our role is to submit to them. Even in countries that are ruled by dictators and tyrants, their rule, that rule, is better than no rule at all. Why? Because the complete absence of rule is anarchy, and no society can continue under anarchy. So any government with rules and laws is better than no government at all. But I hope that everyone here sees how blessed we are to live in a country where our laws aren't absolute and where revolutions begin and end without violence or bloodshed. And that place is in the ballot box when we vote, where our voices of approval or dissent are heard. It's there where laws that we want can be approved by those, and, and those we don't like can be removed. And where the authority of rulers begin and end. Yet, even though we have that freedom, that choice in this country as Americans, we shouldn't forget that God will always be in control. Job 12.23 says, He makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges nations, then leads them away. So if you ever feel yourself feeling scared or anxious about the direction our elected leaders are taking this country in, know this. It says in Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans of a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. Now, there are times when disobedience, when obedience is not required. If a human government orders a believer to act contrary to the revealed will of God, then a believer must disobey the government. In that case, you have a higher responsibility. And according to Acts 5.29, you should obey God rather than men. Now, if you're punished for that disobedience, if you're punished for disobeying, you should endure that punishment courageously. However, under no circumstances should we as Christians, as 
Bible-believing, born-again Christians, should we rebel or seek to overthrow the government that, again, God instituted? Now, verse 15 concerns Paul's explanation for doing good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. God's will is that his people should live so honorably and unblameably that the unconverted will have no legitimate basis for accusation. By living a life of exemplary conduct, you'll be able, you'll be able to expose the ignorance of the charges being made against Christianity by foolish men. For example, if someone you know were to make a comment that Christians are nothing but intolerant idiots, you can easily prove them wrong by asking, by asking them if that's what they think about you. If you've never given them a reason to believe that about you, to believe that you're an intolerant idiot or, or that you're an idiot, basically you'll be proving them wrong. Peter then adds a condition for submitting to authorities. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Christians are to submit to the authorities, not only because they, have a le they are legally required to, but also because they're free from the bondage to civil authorities. When you and I act responsibly towards those in authority, we're doing it not as slaves to those authorities, but as God's freed people and as his representatives. Nevertheless, we must remember that even though spiritually we are free people, we're not to use our freedom as a license to sin. That kind of life will only, will only hurt the, the church and give ample justification for those who want to do us harm. Or rather than using our freedoms for selfish purposes, we ought to use it unselfishly. We ought to use it for others. It saddens me and it bothers me when I see so-called Christians using their religion, using Christianity to veal their evil actions. You see, the cause of Christ never advances when evil masquerades itself in religious clothes. A true believer submits himself to authority because he's first of all submitted to Christ. He uses his freedom, he or she uses his freedom as a tool to build with and not as a weapon to fight with. A good example of this attitude was Nehemiah, who willingly gave up his own rights to help his people and restore the walls of Jerusalem. Finally, in verse 17, Peter repeats his exhortation in both general and, and uh, specific terms. 
beginning with the general command to honor everyone, Peter then details three specific manifestations of this honor. We're to love all people, but we're especially obligated to love the brothers and sisters of our spiritual family. This is a love like God's love for us, that agape love. It's utterly undeserved, but it goes out to the loveless. It looks for no reward and is stronger than death. He also says we're to fear God. We fear him when we reverence him as the supreme Lord, glorify him when he comes, when he becomes our number one priority. We fear doing anything that would displease him and we fear misrepresenting him before men. And then he says, we're to honor the emperor. Peter returns to the subject of human rulers for a final reminder. We're to respect rulers as officials appointed by God for the maintenance of an orderly society. Now in the next paragraph we're about to read, Peter will address one of the most common groups of people within the church and will instruct them how to live a holy life. So if you still have your Bibles open, follow along as I read from verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters, masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For, if it, for it brings favor if, because of the consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in, in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, before I break down this paragraph, I think it's important to give you some historical context in which this letter was written. In Peter's day, the institution of slavery was different than the disgusting racist system in modern history, or even the deplorable underworld of slave trading in our modern day. 
although mistreatment mistreat or yeah mistreatment of slaves did occur at the time it must be remembered that first century slaves were generally well treated many were not many were not only unskilled laborers but often they were managers overseers and trained doctors nurses teachers musicians and skilled artists historians have noted that there were extensive Roman laws regulating how slaves were, be, were to be treated. Furthermore, most of them were normally paid for their service in order for them to eventually purchase their freedom. Nevertheless, their service was involuntary, was involuntary which made their legal status, social standing, and their economic opportunities much lower than others in the Roman society. Now apparently some newly converted slaves thought their spiritual freedom also guaranteed personal and political freedom. And as a result of this thinking, as a result of, of them acting out what they, were, what they thought was right, it created problems for themselves and for the churches. Now, Paul also dealt with this problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 24. And it, was also an, and it was also an issue he touched on in his letter to his friend Philemon. Now, today, there are no slaves. There are no, technically in America here, there are no Christian slaves today, at least in a New Testament sense. But what Peter wrote does have application to employees, to us, if we're employees, if we're working for somebody. We're to be submissive to those who are over us, whether they're kind or unkind. And believe me, I've had my fair share of unlikable supervisors. And I know that it's not always easy to work for someone that you don't particularly like. Now, it's a built-in fact of life that in any society or organization, there must be authority on one hand and obedience to that authority on the other. So, it's for any servant's own good to submit to his master, otherwise he would not have employment. But it's much more important for a Christian employee to submit and not take advantage of their employers, especially if they're Christian ones. Now always keep in mind that those Christian, if they are Christian employers, that they're your brothers or sister in Christ. And that the last thing you want to do is to create tension in the workplace. If for some reason that Christian employer has to let you go, don't hold it against them. You have to understand they have a, their calling is to, maybe they were called to run that business. And, you know, they have to make sure that that business is maintained. It's nothing personal for them, for a lot of for a lot of those Christian employers. 
It's just business. Now, personally, man, I'm sure that they would love to fellowship with you, pray with you, hang out with you, be your, you know, I mean, but it's just, you know, that's, you know, for them, that they, that's what they're called to do. Trust God. Trust God and keep in mind, oh, and believe that there's a reason and purpose if you are dismissed, if you are let go. However, regardless of who you work for, though, you should always do a good day's work and honestly earn your pay. Now, as I go through the rest of this passage, I ask, um, I'll ask that, you know, that, that, that you or that the Lord will show you how the rest of this passage applies to you as a worker. It would be really difficult for me to stop at every point and say, well, this is how it applies to you, a worker. I mean, I would suggest as you go through it or maybe as you go back home and go through it, see how some of these things apply to you personally as, as someone who works for somebody else. Now, so just as citizens are to submit to the government, household slaves are commanded to submit to their masters with all reverence, or in other words, in all, with all respect. What Peter is conveying to them here was that they were to live as holy Christians in spite of the temptation to break free from their low status in life. He urges them to be good and obedient workers regardless if their masters, regardless if their masters are good and gentile or cruel, I'm sorry, good and gentle or cruel and unreasonable. In verse 19, he explains the reason why such submission ought to be practiced when we knowingly suffer unjustly, we win God's approval. You see, it pleases God when we endure undeserved pain without fighting back because of our trusting confidence or our trusting awareness of God's presence and never failing care. When believers are confident that God will ultimately right all wrongs, it enables them to submit to an unjust master without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. Verse 20 then explains verse 19 in more detail. Those slaves who endure punishment because they have sinned will not receive any approval from God. See, there's no virtue in patient suffering for our own misdeeds. And certainly there isn't glory for God in it. Such suffering will never mark us out as Christians or make others want to become Christians. Only those who suffer patiently for doing good will be rewarded by God. This kind of endurance is something only made possible by having a consciousness of God and continually trusting him in him to care 
for those rights when they're trampled underfoot by others. Now, again, as I mentioned, I know that at such times, trusting God isn't easy. For it goes against our natural inclinations. We want to fight back. We want to stand up and, and raise our fists up and raise our fist up or, or take up arms or, or whatever, talk back and shout back. I know that naturally that's what we want to do. But it's in those moments where we hold back and just allow God, you know, to do his work and just and have faith that he understands, he knows what's going on. It's in those moments that faith shows itself to be genuine. Something that in God's eyes is far more precious than gold and brings favor with God. The thought of unbelievers suffering for righteousness sake leads Peter to point back to Jesus' own unjust suffering. He says, you think you're suffering? Well, let me point back to Jesus. Let me point back to our Lord and Savior. And he's able to do that because, because he was there. He's reminding us, he's reminding his readers in verse 21 that we've been called to act as he acted, suffering for the wrongs of others. He is our main example as someone who endured punishment unjustly. When he was reviled, Jesus didn't revile in return. But in his sufferings, he committed himself to the Father. Jesus proved that a person could be in the will of God, be greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. There's a shallow brand of popular theology today that claims that Christians will not suffer if they're in the will of God. But in my honest opinion, anyone who promotes such ideas haven't meditated much on the cross. They haven't really seen, again, what Jesus had to endure when he lived here on the earth, when he walked here among us. In verse 24, Peter puts the, dis the distinctiveness of Jesus' suffering and death in the forefront. As Christians, we're not, only, we're not only to follow Christ in his suffering, but also we must always remember that his suffering was unique and it was the basis of our salvation. All the agony that Jesus endured wasn't brought on by his own sins. For he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Rather, it was for our own sins that he was nailed on the tree. There on the cross, an innocent man became a substitute for every guilty sinner so that those who believe in him might live for righteousness. So, because he suffered for our sins once and for all, we shouldn't allow ourselves to get into a position 
where we have to suffer for them too. The fact that he died for those sins should cause us to die to them too. Now, the phrase, by his wounds you have been healed, is drawn from Isaiah 53.5 and refers to Jesus' death on the cross. Now, many will attribute or some will say that um, it means that, you know, by his, by his wounds we have received, we will receive physical healing. And I guess a, a case could be made for that. But generally, overall, what he's speaking of here is his physical death. And it's through his death that we're spiritually healed. We're spiritually healed from the virus of sin we were infected with when Adam and Eve first sinned against God. You see, it was because of their sin. From the moment they took a bite from that fruit, it infected all humanity with sin. Whether they're newborn infants, all the way through their entire lives, all humanity was infected with sin because of, because of them, because of what they did. But again, as the Bible says, as we read, Jesus healed us. He rescued us. He rescued us from that bondage. We're no longer, if we believe in him and accept, in him, accept him as our Lord and Savior, we're washed, we're made clean, we're now innocent in the eyes of God. Now in the final verse of this paragraph, he gives his last application to this topic. There, Peter reminds us that before conversion, we were wandering from God like sheep going astray. However, by virtue of Christ's death as the suffering servant, we've returned and been and have been united to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This should remind us that those who are in authority, whether it's the president or our bosses, they, they aren't ultimately in charge. Our ultimate leader and ruler is Jesus Christ himself who perfectly cares, protects, and guides our souls now and for all eternity. He is our shepherd. He is our overseer. This text has significance in our world today. While there are times when a Christian ought to assert himself or herself or when Christians ought to fight for their rights, there is another way, the way of suffering that follows the life of Jesus. This path of suffering and justice isn't for the feeble or the weak need. It's for those who are willing to pick up the cross daily and follow Jesus. And again, I know that feeling of seeing injustice in the world, seeing what's going on in the news and being like, 
I want to go out there with those demonstrators. I want to go out there and fight these people or make my arguments and fight against those who are supporting or not supporting the, uh, any kind of issue. I've seen the protests and I know that it brings emotions one way or another. You know, and, it, and I realize that it takes a lot of me just to say that's not what I'm called to do. As Christians, that's, I mean, how would it look if your pastor was out there fighting, you know, someone wearing a black hooded mask? You know, would that really show the love of your pastor? Would that really show he cares for people? No. You know, I, we, and, the, the, and I hope that you would follow that same, same example. We're not called to fight. We're not called to be revolutionaries. We're not called. We're called to love others. We're called to bring people to Christ, to show the love of Christ to others, to, to tell them, regardless of what they've done, regardless of all the sins that they committed, past, present, or future, God loves them. He died for them. And again, we are to be examples of that. What kind of an example would you be if you mentioned that to somebody and the next thing you know, you're knocking someone out because they don't believe what you believe or you're fighting or you're cussing somebody out because they don't believe what you believe. We have to set the example. We have, you know, we have that desire to be like Jesus, we ought to act like Jesus. Next time you're out there and you're thinking, what should I do? And there's that common phrase, is that's a what would you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Yeah, there's a lot of things, as I mentioned, there's, there's laws out there and things out there that we should definitely stand against to stand against abortion, we should stand against any kind of slavery, sex trafficking. You know, anyone that's trying to, to, to harm women and children. You know, laws that are just wrong. It's okay to stand up to them, but as I mentioned, if you do, and you're punished because you're breaking the law, just like Again, looking back at Martin Luther King Jr., he went to jail. You know, he, he suffered. But he suffered for doing what was right. There was a lot of unjust laws back then. And he was like, no, this isn't right. And so he, he did what he had to do and, and protested and and yes, he went to jail, but he was okay with that. He knew that it was it was bigger reason. This was this was what God was calling him to do. So as we live godly lives and submit in times of suffering, we're following Christ's example and being transformed into his likeness. You see, when we willingly submit and obey. We're not only doing it for, for the sake of lost souls and for the Lord's sake, 
but also for our own sake. So that, so that we may grow spiritually and become more like Christ. Now, yes, it can be intimidating knowing that an unsaved world is watching us and waiting to call us out each time we fail. But guess what? The shepherd in heaven is also watching over us and he's rooting for us. He's rooting for you. So you have nothing to fear. Therefore, you can live boldly by the words found in Psalm 118.6 that say, The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. So if you haven't done so already, you can submit to him and trust in the fact that he will work everything out together for your good and for his glory. Now as I close this morning, I want to speak to those who are watching and listening and you know, I know that many of these words are hard to really understand. They're hard to grasp. But as you grow, as you when you allow when you are born again, Spirit comes to live in, in you and that your perspective of this world will completely start to change. You will start reading words like this and you're like, okay, I see, I understand. Again, it's not really, yes, you're understanding it, but it's the Lord speaking to you through his word. Where maybe at one time, these words didn't make any sense to you or were foreign to you. Now they do make sense because God's word is now powerful, living and active and powerful in, in your lives. So, again, if you're listening and watching and are ready or at that point where like, yes, I need to receive Jesus into my heart. I can lead you in a prayer to do that. But again, you have to come to a point where you realize your own condition of who you are as a sinner. You have to believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Allow him. You have to open up the door to your heart and allow him to come in and start taking all the junk out. And if you're ready to do that, wherever you're at, close your eyes and, and with all your heart, with all sincerity, pray this. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I now believe that Jesus, that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. that he died in the place of me. So I place all my sins upon him now, Lord. And I freely receive your forgiveness. So as I am emptied now of my sins, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your love.
them ye born again. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. And thank you for this new life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you pray that, please believe that it's not by any work, it's not by anything that you've done that you're saved, that it's all because of the grace of God. It's all because of his love, his mercy for you. You didn't deserve it. You don't have to keep working for it. You just have to trust in him, believe in him, allow him to change you. For those of us that are here, I hope these words again, um, these two examples, being good citizens and being good workers, um, have made an impact, will continue to make an impact that has caused you to think differently, maybe in ways that you've never thought of before. We have to understand that, again, we have to stand out as believers. We must stand out. We do this by just submitting and obeying. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, yes, it's, it's hard, Lord. It's hard for us sometimes to have that heart of submission and obedience to leaders, to those in authority we don't particularly like. Whether it's those in maybe in, in Washington, whether it's those in our state capitals, whether it's those in our, in our, in our city's leadership board. But it's only through you, Lord, only because of you, because of your love, that we ought to and we should, we must, Lord, be, be submit and obey them, Lord, even if we don't agree or don't like that particular person. We must, again, you're calling us to just respect the office. And this also applies to our bosses as well. Give us the strength to, to just live obediently to you first of all Lord because we know that once we are obedient to you we can start just being obedient to others and when we suffer we're suffering because of you Lord change the way we look at this world Lord if you haven't if you haven't done so already or continue to help us see the world through your eyes. Not as we see them, not as our flesh wants to see it, Lord. Or how we feel, but may we see the world according to you, according to your world, to, to your word. Shape us and mold us into the image of your son. Continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may it just overflow into our words and actions every single moment, every single day. Pray all this, all this in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ.